All right, good evening, Bible nerds. <laughs> okay. So, in preparing for tonight, I think what I realized is we will not even get to chapter 9 tonight. Um, we left off in 826, and between 826 and 839, I'm pretty confident we're going to just stay there. Uh, tonight, uh, maybe start nine, but um, I think we might not have time for that. We're going to get into some rich and deep waters tonight. I hope you brought your scuba gear because um, I found myself just unpacking verses and realizing I've been unpacking the same verse for about 45 minutes now. So um, we're going to get into the P word predestination quite a bit because we have to. No, I'm kidding. Um, so it's going to be an interesting night. It's going to be um, probably a little bit more on the academic side tonight. Um, there's a lot to learn and go over and talk about. So let's pray and get into it. Uh, Romans 8, 26 through 39. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we come to you. Lord, we're thankful for the Holy Spirit's work in our life. Lord, we just um, rejoice over being yours and all that that entails, including everlasting life, but also, Lord, an incredible ministry wherever we are all the time. So we lift you up now, Lord, that you would edify us, you would instruct us. Lord, you would show us things we haven't seen before. You would allow us to grow tonight, Lord. Uh, Lord, we ask that you forgive us our sins, and we confess to you, Lord, that on your holy standard, we fall short hourly, minute by minute, but Lord, you are gracious to us, and so we stand here with you as our Father, your Son as our Savior, the Holy Spirit is our helper, and we're so grateful. So we dedicate this time to you, Lord that you would have your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we just talked about, we finished last week with this idea of the must of suffering before glory. There's a, since the fall of man, there's been a pattern established throughout Scripture of suffering coming before glory. And Paul, who is extremely credible when it comes to suffering, as he received the 39 lashes on five different occasions. He was beaten over the head with rods three times. He was stoned and left for dead once. He was imprisoned more than all the other apostles. He was shipwrecked and floating in the sea for a day and a night. Uh, he suffered cold and nakedness and, and hunger and all these things. And with the compilation of his sufferings, including his thorn in the flesh, he said, I consider the sufferings of this present world not worthy of comparing to the glory that awaits in Christ Jesus, right? So the man who can speak credibly on it says, the glory far outweighs the suffering. So therefore, persevere, right, and endure. Now, as he gives us that wonderful word, he picks up in verse 26 by saying, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings, which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So now, so the Holy Spirit does this ministry, this prayer ministry for us. He intercedes for us in prayer. So here we see that prayer is Trinitarian. We pray to the Father. We pay, pray through the name of his Son, and we see that the Holy Spirit aligns our prayers to the will of God. So <clears throat> this says we don't know how to pray as we ought. Okay, The book of James, if we go to James chapter 4, he'll support that by saying that not only do we uh, not know how to pray as we ought, but the, so the Holy Spirit has to guide that. He'll say in the first six verses of chapter 4, therefore, oh, that's Hebrews, let's go to James. So in James 4, first six verses, he'll say, 
Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you not think that the scriptures say in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So he says, when we pray, we actually create chaos in our lives because we ask according to wrong motives. And God is faithful not to grant your request when you ask according to wrong motives. I always see our prayer life match a good relationship between a parent and child. You know, children ask for things that are not good for them, correct? And then they freak out, kick and scream when they don't get them, even though they don't fully understand. And that reminds me of us, right? We pray and we don't get, and we kick and scream and holler because we don't understand why we can't have it. But just as we know as parents, we're doing the most loving thing for our child when we say no. So does God know he's doing the most loving thing by us by telling us no. Even though the child doesn't understand, we just have to say, you don't get it, but this is actually the loving thing to do with you. And likewise, God would say, you don't get it, but this is the loving thing to do with you. So if I asked for hands, and I will, um, have you ever had a prayer not answered that later on you go, oh, by the way, thank you for not answering that prayer. That was silly. Okay, yeah. So that happens all the time. All right. So now... Romans here says that the, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us to help us align our prayer life with the will of God. Now, the most helpful scripture for me in understanding this is 1 Corinthians 2, starting in 6. It says, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age know, for have they, if they had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye is not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except for the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who's from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. In other words, we can't know the mind of God unless we have the Spirit of God. God gives us His Spirit so we can know the mind of God. And now we can pray more rightly, even though the Holy Spirit will still be there to guide our prayers. But now we can say things like this, God, here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I'd really, really like, but not my will be done, but yours be done. It's this faith and trust that you have the freedom to ask, and then you have the trust to receive what ans whatever answer you get, that you would actually have a type of trust that is thankful for the no's, thankful for the not now's, but later and then certainly thankful for the yeses. So we have the Holy Spirit to intercede for us, to lead and guide that, uh, our prayers that way. Now, the book of Hebrews says there's one intercessor between God and man, and that's the man Christ Jesus, correct? He's interceding for us on behalf of our prayers. The Holy Spirit is enlightening us to the mind of God in our prayers and cries out for us with groans, uh, during our prayers to help align our prayers to the will of God. It's pretty silly if we don't pray then, right? Look at all we're missing out on when we don't pray. All this activity of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit actively engaged in our prayer lives. My goodness, we should pray more. All right, Romans 8, 28. Romans 8, 28. 
For I consider, nope, that's 18. There we go. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All right. Probably had that one memorized, right? It's very much a memory verse. It might be so memorized and so used that when somebody really needs it, like they're really experiencing a tragedy, you really hesitate to say, God works all things for good, right? You almost feel trite and all of that. But don't ever feel trite about a promise of God. Because God has, he gives us the reasons why he's going to work things for our good. Because the next verse starts with the word for. So he's going to say, for these reasons, God's going to work all things for for your good. And because I always like to tell you how a movie ends before you see it, I'm going to tell you how this ends before we read the verses in between. He's going to work things for your good because the end of verse 30 says he's going to glorify you one day. So him working all things for your good sets you on a path towards your future glorification. So he who purchased you with his blood has plans on glorifying you for all eternity. So therefore, you're in this process of sanctification where you're going to have all things, things that we consider evil, things that we consider not important, and certainly things that we consider good, all of that's going to work together for our good. Now, you might be saying, did you just say even evil things? Yes. Can you back that up scripturally? Yes. Are you going to keep pretending to have a conversation with somebody who's not having a conversation with you? No, I'm done with that. All right. So in Genesis 50, 20, after Joseph is addressing his brothers who were about to kill him, but then because they're so nice, they said, we'll just sell him into slavery. And then they stage his death to make the father believe he's dead and have their father enter into this long season of absolute grief. I would say even a lifetime of grief until many years later, he sees his son Joseph alive again. And they're comfortable with that. They're comfortable with causing all this false grief in their father. They're comfortable with selling their brother into slavery, all of this for all of those years. Now, when the gig is up and they find Joseph alive, and they're facing Joseph, Joseph tells them not to worry because he knows a greater truth than they could possibly imagine, which is what they intended for evil, God had intended for good. Why? Because he works all things for good. But it's conditional. It's not for everybody, is it? Okay, It's for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now, Scholars distinguish between four types of good, as you see in your notes, okay? The good, good, the bad, good, the bad, bad, and the good, bad. Now, is that self-explanatory, or should we unpack that a little bit? All right, so let's distinguish between these, these actions. The good, good, only God is capable of. This is where Jesus will say, why do you call me good? No one's good but God alone. In other words, nobody meets the moral holy standards except for God, and of course, Jesus Christ through God. None of us do that. So none of us are good, good. Only God is good, good. So the first word of these binaries refers to to, um, the good or the bad as, as, well, let me just explain as we go. So the bad, good, the next one that we see, are what God considers bad, but we consider good, okay? So what would God consider bad that we consider good? Everything done apart from faith. What if I take in an orphan? Well, are you doing that for the glory of God? No, then it's bad. It's good on this side of heaven. It's good for you and the orphan or whatnot. It's not considered good by God. It's not done in faith. It's not glorifying to him. It's what Augustine called a splendid vice. It's a vice, but it's a splendid one. Okay, It's the bad good. So this is why Jesus will say, nobody's good but God alone. And they would might be tempted to say, don't you know what I've done in your name? Lord, I've driven out demons in your name, and I've done this in your name, and I've done that in your name. And what does Jesus say to them? Depart from me, you worker of evil. I never knew you, right? 
It was good in our eyes, not good in, in God's eyes. It's an unregenerate good work. It's Augustine's splendid vice. Bad as it concerns God, even though it looks good to us. Then there's the bad, bad. God says it's bad, we say it's bad, right? This is virtually all crime, right? Everything that we agree with God is bad. These are just plain old bad works, undeniable. Uh, we're in agreement with God that th this is all bad. And then there's the good, bad. It's good according to God, and it's bad according to us. Now, what is that? Joseph's brother selling him into slavery, okay? We would say, very bad. God says, wait to see the outcome, how good this is going to be, okay? Now, does that mean Joseph's brother is going to be rewarded in heaven for selling him into slavery? No. God has to redeem it all, and they're accountable for their bad, but it's the good that God works out of all things, including bad things. It's called the doctrine of concurrence. So concurrently, we have human badness with God's intent on using that for an ultimate good. That's why we call last Friday, what? Good Friday. And if somebody never heard of the Christian faith and they go, wow, why do you guys call it good? And we point to a beaten bloody guy hanging on a cross, they go, you guys are sick, right? You're absolutely sick that you call that good. But what God did with it is so good that we can't help but call that day Good Friday, right? All right. Doctrine of concurrence. Genesis 50 is the greatest example of that, I think, or the cross is a great example of that. All right, now I'm going to get into um, some serious verses here that um, take some very careful consideration. So you're going to be very familiar with views on this called Calvinism, called Arminianism, and... Um, I'm going to try to explain it in what I guess could be called biblicalism. I just made that up on the spot. But, um, and of course, Calvinists would say theirs is biblicalism, and Arminians would say theirs is biblicalism. Yet, I don't know about you, but I, I was trained in a very Calvinistic seminary. And all my years there, I could never buy into the Calvinistic doctrines. What I, I just can't get my arms around through the Bible is the inescapable conclusion through Calvinism that there's people born without hope. That people are predetermined to never know the love of God, to never know his salvation, and there's nothing they can ever do about it. Now, there might be Calvinists in the room here, okay? Maybe you're smarter than me, and I just don't see it. But let me tell you this, I don't see it. And I'm going to walk through these verses now telling you what I do see. And if you need to light a stake on fire and tie me to it, fine. But I'm going to support what I say biblically. Okay? Now, whenever there's something that you don't know in the Bible, start with something that you do know and get as close to what you don't know as you can through the things that you do know. Does that make sense? Okay. So what do we know? about these issues that are pretty indisputable. I'd start with this one, God is love. Okay, indisputable enough? God desires mercy. Okay? Um, with that as a framework, God is just. That's the other side of it, right? He's just, correct? There's no injustice with God. Okay? Now, with these thoughts in mind, Let's take a look at what's known as this golden chain of salvation. This golden chain of salvation is um, the next three verses, okay? So, starting in verse 29, after saying that God will work all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, he then says this, for whom he foreknew... So do you see that the preposition for means this is directly related to those who love God, correct? It, so people love God, they're called according to this purpose, therefore their lives, everything in their lives will be used for good. Why? 
because for those whom he foreknew, now this word foreknew, some scholars like to refer to his prior knowledge, that he has this knowledge of what's going to happen and acts upon that, where others reject that, and they say, no, this is the gnosis word, the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge, but it's used sometimes for situations that don't refer to knowledge, but refers to intimacy. So Adam knew Eve and Cain was born, okay? So it's an intimacy that Adam had with Eve that allowed Cain to be born, okay? So they would say this foreknowledge of God is better in this verse to be defined as he foreloved these people, okay? He foreloved them. Those said that he foreloved. Now, it, it's one of my hang-ups is that on the Calvinist side of things, they don't want God's foreknowledge to be the reason why predestination happens. Okay, they will not accept this idea of God looking through the tunnels of time, seeing how, God, how people freely respond to him, and therefore predetermining if they go to heaven or hell based on that. They much more see in the scriptures the sovereignty of God, which we'll see next chapter, where he has a right to do whatever he wants. Okay? Now, do I deny for a moment God has a right to do whatever he wants? No. Except for I'll say this. He won't do things that deny his own nature. Okay? He will not deny. He won't lie. Not because he's limited and, and, and can't lie. I think he can't lie. I think that's absolutely right. But that's not a limitation of his. That's actually a freedom to not lie. We're not free to not lie. We're bound by sin and we become liars. If we were completely free, we would never ever lie. That would be a part of our freedom. Sin is bondage. Holiness is freedom. That's why sin becomes addictive and holiness does not. Right? As much as pastors wish tithing was addictive, it's just not. Because whenever you make an offering or whenever you do anything holy, if it's not done out of your freedom, there's no honor being given to God in it. The only honor he can receive from your holy works is if they're done freely to him. It's like you can't make somebody love you and get honored by that, can you? Okay. So with those thoughts, it says, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, there's that word. So, when we talk about predestination or we talk about election, which are clearly biblical concepts, the words are in the book, correct? Cannot say there's no predestination. I just read it in the Bible. We can't say there's no election. We can read that in the Bible. It's there. The question is, do we properly understand it? And I don't know. Let's see. Let's see how close we can get. Let's take things that we know, things that we can discover, and see how close we can get to the things that we don't know. Okay? See if we can make educated guesses or inspired guesses. That would be better. Now, those he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, the first thing that we see here is he's predestining for a purpose. This, this verse gives us the actual purpose of his predestination. And certainly what it does not say here is he predestined them to heaven or he predestined somebody to hell. That's not in the text, correct? What are they predestined towards? To be conformed to the image of his son. Now that's fascinating. Because those who love God are called according to his purpose he foreknew them, and he predestined those he foreknew to be like Jesus. That's what they're predestined towards, is being like Jesus, to be conformed to the image of the Son. Now, I want to point out something that was pointed out to me today. God working good in the believer's life directly entails you being conformed to the image of Christ. The good that God is working in you is confirmation to Christ, conforming to Christ who said, pick up a cross every day and follow me. That's part of the good in your life is the cross that you're carrying. Isn't that right? 
Part of the good of God's working in you is cross-bearing. Okay? Now, so this purpose of predestination is to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Okay? So firstborn, meaning those born from the dead to never die again, Jesus is the first fruits of resurrection. Jesus is the first fruits of resurrection, and God is going to predestine us to become like Jesus so that as we're like him in his death, we'll also be like him in his resurrection. Paul covered that already in Romans, didn't he? It's already established. Okay? So we're predestinated towards that. Now, let's be as thorough as we can in our discuss this discussion. So, the absolute truth of predestination, whether it's 100% Calvinistic, 100% Arminian, something in or something in between, whatever the absolute truth of it is should match all of Scripture, right? The absolute truth should not contradict any part of Scripture. We agree with that? Okay. So in Romans 2, which we could pull up many verses, but Romans 2, verses 4 through 11 this has to remain true with whatever we decide on predestination. Okay, that's for me. I'm in the shower. Okay, all right. All right, so in Romans 2, starting in verse 4, it says, is that where I want to be? Yeah, Romans 2, 4 through 11, it says, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. Now, that is truth, correct? God works that way. So in what way does God work? It says this, you are storing up wrath for yourself because of your hardness of your heart and your impenitent heart, you're treasuring up wrath for yourself. What a silly thing to say if they are born predestined to hell. They're not treasuring up wrath for themselves. That wrath came before they were born, correct? So whatever we say about predestination has to match the Scripture. It has to, correct? And it's going to have to match Scriptures that we'll cover next week about Jacob I love, Esau I hated. It's got to match that. It's got to match Scriptures that say God can make a pot of clay for noble or ignoble purposes, whatever he wants. It's got to match that too, correct? And it can't contradict either side of this, Correct? Okay? It has to, there has to be harmony here somewhere. Okay? So clearly, scriptures teach you are accountable for whatever wrath you experience. We agreed? Yes. Okay. And if we're not, save it for the 8 o'clock Q&A session. Okay? All right. Now, let's go back to the golden chain of salvation here. So of those he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, let, there's more verses on predestination. So let's go to those. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And I think we're going to get that word twice in this chapter, so let's take a look at it here. Let's begin in verse 3. Let's, well, first let me say this. Verse 1 says this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to, so who are the recipients of this letter? The saints who are in Ephesus. 
okay? The faithful in Christ Jesus. These are believers in a Gentile church, correct? These are believers in a Gentile church. This is a Gentile audience, correct? Okay, so what does Paul say to a Gentile audience? Well, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose, that's actually our word for elect, right? Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That's like being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, right? Okay. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Again, there's no predestination to hell here for sure, right? The only direction predestination is pointing here is to be adopted as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. So my thought here is this. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We are going to talk about this word chosen and this word called in a moment. In a moment. Now, for right now, I want to say this. It sure sounds like we were, so we were certainly chosen. We were certainly chosen in him and it was certainly before the foundation of the world, correct? We're chosen to him before the foundation of the world. So it certainly sounds here like this conversation's over. It's predestination. We were chosen before the foundation of the world, and if we were chosen before the foundation of the world, then those who are not chosen, that was decided before the foundation of the world. So what are we really talking about here? It's Calvinism all the way, correct? That's what it sounds like, correct? All right, now. Well... This word chose. I want to bring you to Matthew's gospel where we get a very clear teaching on being chosen and being called. It's Matthew's gospel. Why do I not see this in my notes? Am I skipping so far ahead? Okay, I'm skipping ahead a little, but I'll cover it all. Matthew 22. Well, let's cover the other Ephesians predestination because this will encompass them both. So let's start in verse 7. So we're predestined, he predestined us before the foundation of the world to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ. It's what the text says, correct? Now, verse 7. In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will. So I think it's important that we identify what this mystery is, okay? He says he's made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who, are f- who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Again, no predestination to hell. It's just a predestination according to his purpose, correct? So nowhere do we get that people are born on a path to hell. Okay, Nowhere do we get that. Now, let's unpack this even further. So, let's go to this mystery of his will, first of all. What is this mystery of his will? Well, Paul tells us in chapter 3 of Ephesians. So, as we go to chapter 3 of Ephesians, and we look at this mystery of his will, all right. Mystery of his will. Let's start in verse 1 of chapter 3. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. So we clearly got the audience as Gentiles, correct? If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery. So now, now we're back to the mystery again, correct? He made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, 
by which you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. He wants you to understand he knows the mystery of Christ. Okay? He has this knowledge of the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men. He's talking about the old covenant, was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed. Okay, so I'm going to suggest this. It wasn't made known in the old covenant as it's known in the new covenant, but there were certainly signs of it in the old covenant. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. So what's the mystery that was concealed in the Old Testament, revealed in the New Testament? He says here, it's been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Verse 6, here it is, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. That's the mystery. Wouldn't that have been quite mysterious for the Jews? Okay, here's the mystery. The, the age has changed the dispensation. He used that word dispensation twice already. The dispensation has been changed from the dispensation of the Jews to the dispensation of the Gentiles. You see that? And he says, it's been revealed now in a way that it wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. Well, what ways at all was it revealed in the New Testament? Well, we can go to Hosea chapter 1. I think this is a key text for this week and, and next week, Hosea chapter 1, where it says, verse 10, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there it shall be said to them, you are sons of the living God. Then the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head and they shall come up out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. Now, here we have the prophet Hosea sharing with us something that Paul will quote in the next chapter where he says, in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. That's Gentiles in the old covenant, correct? You who are not my people, there it shall be said to them, you are sons of the living God. This is where Paul talked about our adoption as Gentiles, right? And he says you were predestined to adoption. So it seems to me he's saying you Gentiles have been predestined to adoption. And where was the predestinating? Well, certainly before the foundation of the world. But when did it start getting revealed? Well, Hosea 1.10. Hosea 1.10, he says, the people who are called my people won't be called my people, and the people who are not called my people will be called sons of the living God. How about Hosea chapter 2, verse 23? Another one Paul will quote. Then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Gentiles, I'll have mercy on them. Then I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they shall say, you are my God. That's what we say, right? You are my God. Now, you, we've been in the Gentile age for 2,000 years. It's not surprising to us, but bring yourself back to Hosea's day. Utterly shocking, correct? Utterly and completely shocking is this news. There's going to be a change of dispensations from Jew to Gentile. So Paul is addressing these Gentiles both in the Roman church and the Ephesian church. And he's talking about their predestination, not predestination to heaven or hell, but predestination to be conformed to the image of his son, to be adopted into the family of God so that Jesus Christ can have some brothers. He can be the firstborn among many brethren. And that firstborn means that as he died and rose again, we are going to identify ourselves with that death through our baptism. This is baptismal talk now, right? And then identify ourselves with his resurrection, all in that baptism. And as we now identify with his death and resurrection, the Bible says he's not ashamed to call us brothers now. Isn't that amazing? We are adopted in as his brothers. Isn't that honoring? Incredibly honoring? Okay, now... Let's get to back to our golden chain of salvation, Romans 8. And now, 
Here's what we've covered. We said, all things work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to His... It is not 840, 740. I thought we were 15 minutes into this thing. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Okay. That, wow. Okay. So we know all things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined... For what purpose? To be conformed to the image of his son. Why? That his son might be the firstborn among many brethren. We looked at the two instances of predestination in Ephesians 1, the instance of predestination here. We saw the things that it's pointing to. And then it says, moreover, whom he predestined. Notice the plural word, these. Not individual, right? He's saying these that he's predestined. He also called. So let's look at this word called. Now we're going to Matthew's gospel, chapter 22. Those that he predestined, he also called. I think understanding these, this word chosen that we saw in Ephesians 1 and this word called, we got to have a distinction between these because they're different words. Jesus uses them differently, so we should use them differently. Matthew 22 the first 14 verses of Matthew 22 is what we're covering. Matthew 22, 1 through 14, the parable of the wedding feast. Now, it says, And Jesus answered and spoke to the again by, by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. And he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. So, there's the word call, right? He's calling people to the wedding. Do you hear that word? He's calling people to this wedding, and these people who are called are not willing to come. You see the freedom in their decision there? So right now, I'm thinking this. Just because you're called, okay, I'm going to give away the end because I'm going to try to be obvious about this. Just because you're called, you're not what? Necessarily chosen. There are people that are called that don't answer the call. Okay? But they were not willing to come. Now that word willing brings me to another very important text for our understanding. And I'm just going to quote it. Jesus is on the Mount of Olives overlooking the city of Jerusalem and he laments. He's sad. And he's looking over the city where his temple is. This is the city of David, one of the most important cities in the world, theologically. Jesus is overlooking that city near the end of his life, and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing. Hear the tenderness of the call? It's what I wanted to do. He says, But you were not willing. We have to honor these texts when we hear this word predestination. It has to all come together and all make sense. He says, I wanted something. I wanted to gather you. And I'm not getting what I, God omnipotent, wants. I wanted to gather you. But I have so created you in my image, and I am a free being, and I've created you in that image of freedom, that you're breaking my heart now. Wouldn't it be silly for God to have his heart broken over something he predestined to happen and then get emotional over it and be hurt by it? That's not very logical, is it? Listen, there's fear and trembling that comes with teaching this right now because I don't want to get it wrong. And that's why I'm staying in the Bible, aren't I? Okay. Now, he says, call those who were invited. They were not willing, just like the Jews were not willing to come under Jesus' wing when he showed up. And it hurts the heart of God. Hurts his heart. Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited. See, I prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. He's being rejected by people, and he takes that rejection, and he reaches out again and sweetens the deal. Tell them how great it's going to be. Right? 
Am I misreading anything? Tell them how great this is going to be. Ask them again. Listen, isn't it true, maybe it's true, that us in this room, if we invite people to our party and we're told they said no, we ain't reaching out again. That's enough for us to go, heck with you, right? In fact, we'd say, go tell them how sweet the deal is, but tell them they're no longer welcome, right? That's pretty con consistent with us, okay? But not God. He reaches out again to those who have rejected him and says, tell them it's going to be great. Please tell them that again for me, okay? Come to the wedding. You know, this is the wedding of his son in the church. He's inviting them to be a part of the church, isn't he? But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. So it's what they did to the prophets, right? But when the king heard about it, he was furious. God's emotional. He's furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. I think he's talking about A.D. 70. The destruction of the temple, I think is what he's talking about right there. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways. What do you think the highways are going to lead them to? What kind of people are at the end of these highways? These are the Gentiles. Okay, so go into the highways and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. Anybody not invited? This is important for our understanding, isn't it? Okay. All are invited to this wedding. As many as you can find, invite them to the wedding. But God, what if you didn't call them? I'm calling them. Calling them all. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found both bad and good. See how kind God is? Both bad and good. Unconditional love, correct? Both bad and good. Invited to the wedding. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. Okay? So I love this at CCA because we address those. And I go, let's see how God feels about dress code. Okay? So he said to him, friend, did you come in here without a wedding garment? He was speechless. Then the king said to the servant, bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into the outer darkness. They'll be weeping and gnashing his teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So the difference between call and Everybody I invite, I call. Call them all. But not all are chosen. If you're wondering about this guy with a wedding garment, CCA was going to give us a merit. You're going to go to hell. wedding garment, okay? So this guy, without the wedding garment, tried to get in on his own merits, his own garment, his fig leaves. Wasn't accepted. You don't understand what kind of wedding it is, right? It's completely disrespectful for you to show up a wedding in torn blue jeans and a t-shirt, correct? Okay? To try to go to heaven because you think you did so good while you're alive is, is that picture, Okay, we need him to clothe us, because didn't weren't Adam and Eve told on the day you eat of the fruit you will surely die, correct? And then we hear they live to be a hundred and something years old, or no, eight hundred and seven hundred and something years old. Doesn't that's a long day, isn't it? So why didn't they die that day as God said they would? 
Because we learn for the first time, God accepts a substitute. An animal died in their place. Now, don't you have a funny feeling that animal might have been a lamb of some sort? Maybe. I don't know. But God allowed something to die for Adam and Eve. Now, people say, well, they spiritually died that day. And yeah, I'd say they spiritually died that day. But that doesn't take into account the sacrifice that happened. An animal died that was totally innocent. Okay, And I can imagine Adam and Eve looking at that dead animal where no death has ever happened and they're looking at this animal that they just named and now it's dead and it's their fault. Okay, And you're probably going right now, that's awful, that's awful. Well, look at Jesus on the cross. That's your fault. That's my fault. Okay, That's what God's willing to do to clothe us in righteousness so we can go to the wedding properly dressed in his righteousness, not our own. Make sense? Be totally silent if you get it. Awesome. Good. Okay. All right. <laughs> Do you get it? Yeah. All right. I need to know because I'm going to move on and I don't know if... Okay. All right. Now, so there's a difference between calling and choosing, correct? So this says... Whom he predestined, these he also called. Does that necessarily mean they're all saved? Not according to Jesus. But you're going to say, but they were predestined. Well, here's what I'm saying, thinking, supposing. He's predestinating Gentiles as a super large group of people, the Gentiles. He's predestinating being their God and them being his people. Isn't that what Hosea said to us? That's the predestination. Now that the group has been predestinated, you and me as individuals have to put on the proper wedding garment. Okay? We've got to clothe ourselves in the righteousness of Christ or we don't go from called to chosen. Okay? To go from called, the many, to chosen, the few, you got to be dressed in his righteousness. Okay? Now, those that he justified, I'm sorry, those that he called, these he also justified. I feel like I'm walking out of the mud now because this is much more solid ground here. All right, so I can't imagine the questions that are coming in, but anyways. All right, I look forward to them, quite frankly. All right, because I'll be the first one to say, wow, I missed that. I repent of everything I just said. But I have felt this way for years and years, and I keep asking people to say what's wrong with it, and nobody's said anything yet. Okay, now I really can sense the questions coming in, or the comments coming in. But anyways, it'd be good to know. Those he predestined, these he also called. Now, why is this important? Because what hurt my heart through 15 years of seminary training was learning a doctrine that people are born with no hope because everything else I saw about God did not match that in his character. And when I'm told it's just his sovereignty, he can do what he wants, then I lose the entire picture of him as my father. Because my father that I read about in the Bible loves mercy, loves it. One of his closest, most intentionally trained apostles, the Apostle Peter, says that God desires that nobody perish, but that all come to repentance. And I just can't match that with people born with no hope. And that's not the stuff that originally bothered me about that doctrine. What originally bothered me was Jesus saying, at one point, he said, it would be better if you were never born. And that so did not match the character of God in my heart. I, I knew I had to figure something else out. This just wasn't making sense. Why? Because if I were not predestinated to heaven, I was born on a path to hell, and I can't get off it. There's nothing I can do. And then Jesus looks at me and says, it's better if you were never born. I'd say, I know that, Jesus. 
And if you would have gave me a choice to be born or not, I would have said no. And I didn't ask to go to hell either. None of this is on me. It's all on you. Well, you're born sinner. I know. And you were born into this world a Savior. And I'm crying out to you. I'm talking to you now. And you look at me and say, it'd be better if you were never born. It just, it's just not consistent. And I know the story of God is entirely consistent. So those that he called, he also justified. When God closed Adam and Eve in these animal skins, he justified them. He said, you did nothing but earn death today. But I'm going to justify you. I'm going to justify the fact that you're, you're a sinner worthy of death, and I'm going to treat you like a saint worthy of heaven. I'm going to justify that by killing this animal right now. And this animal's death will substitute for yours. So the sin's not unpunished. I'm just transferring it to this animal as I will set up that sacrificial system through the book of Exodus. And they will maintain that sacrificial system until Jesus fulfills it by dying on a cross for you. And those that he justified, these he also glorified. Now, one of the scariest things Jesus ever says is many, the word he uses is many, same word he used when he says many are called, but few are chosen. That same word many, he says, is how many will show up on judgment day with their laundry list of good works saying, this is why you got to let me into heaven. They even call him Lord. They say, Lord, didn't we do this, that, and the other thing for you? We even did it for him. He says, depart from me, you worker of evil. Never knew you. Okay? Now, I promised you a sparkle on a diamond last week, and we didn't get there tonight. Um, and somehow, time went faster than it normally does tonight. So, next week, we're going to talk about a sparkle on a diamond. And... Um, I imagine that will be about half of the class, and then the other half will start with chapter 9, where we get the quotes from Hosea and some more unpacking and uh, the talk of Pharaoh and his hardened heart and all of that stuff. So there's more stuff to unpack on all of this. So my hope was or is that I haven't misrepresented any scriptures. It's my hope. And I haven't misrepresented the character of God. The reason why I was actually excited about tonight, because I feel this is faithful to the Scripture and glorifying to God. Um, so let's submit that now to Him and ask the Holy Spirit to do His work of plugging your ears to what needed to be plugged for and to opening your ears to what needed to be opened for. Okay? Let's pray. So, Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And, Lord, we just pray that in examining your word and your scriptures, that although those that seek one line of understanding would disagree with much of this and those who seek another line of understanding would disagree with this, Lord, none of this is to please them. And I pray that you found tonight faithful. And if not, you would reveal it so that we could repent of it next week. But Lord, you're a God of truth, and we pray that every bit of truth that was spoken tonight, we would rejoice in. So let it be done, Lord, according to your will, in Jesus' name. Amen.